be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk as we continue in a study we began last week uh, in this uh, book, this from the Minor Prophet, study that we have titled, When Life Doesn't Make Sense. For those that are using the Pew Bibles, I believe it's on page 785 or 758. I just know it has a 7 and 8 and a 5 in some order. Start with 785 and we'll see. The rest of you are on your own. You might want to look in your index to find the page. There was a time in my life where I was convinced that the minor prophets kept on moving. Um, but uh, they were there last I checked, but uh, they weren't anyway. And then I realized it was sometimes I use different Bibles and they're different thicknesses. Anyway, all of that. While you're looking, I want to do a very quick commercial that uh, for those who are interested in, in really wrestling with a subject that is contained in the book of Habakkuk, there's an old book by Jerry Bridges called Trusting God. Um, I don't know if it's still orange and all these very bright colors if you find it in the bookstore, but I know it's still available. And the subtitle is that is When, when Life Hurts. Uh, this is a very deep and important subject for us, whether we are in the midst of difficulties or whether we know people who are in the midst of difficulties. And I know some want to just consider, and that's an excellent, excellent resource. As we uh, prepare to come to the Word this morning, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come as those who are in need, whether we are hungering and feeling it or whether we uh, have our appetite uh, somewhat squelched. But we are in need of the nourishment of your word and pray now that as we look to this text that you have recorded for us, that your spirit would be alive within us to bring light to our minds, hope to our hearts, and longing to our soul, that we might realize that the answer to all that is found in you, in your grace, in the person of Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless us now as we study your word and give ourselves to it that we may not only know more, uh, but that we might become more like Christ. This is our hope, and this is your promise. We cling to it now as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, we begin our reading in verse 5, continue through the end of the chapter. There are two sections here. The first part, verses 5 through 11, is God's response to Habakkuk's first uh, complaint, com concern that we looked at last week, and then um, Habakkuk's response to God's response, which is actually another complaint, but we'll, uh, you'll see how that fits, but that also shows the uh, organic and dynamic relationship that we have with our God. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, hear the word of the Lord. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth, uh, go, go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And now Habakkuk's response. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure, of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The word of the Lord, may he bless it to our understanding. It was a very grim scene. The parents sat simmering in the early summer heat, staring dully at the bronze coffin while holding hands, the coffin containing their, the body of their, new, their, their, their 17-year-old son who had just died, tragically. About half dozen or so of their son's classmates came by and took off their carnation boutonnieres and placed them on top of the caskets and walked on. And the father sat, slumped, shaking his head hopelessly, and then seeming aimlessly stood up with his wife as they walked very slowly to the waiting limousine. Across that same cemetery, there was another family that about the same time was burying their 16-year-old son who had died on his 16th birthday. Another family was burying their daughter, 18 years old, just a few days before. And among the victims, there was another family that included twin girls whose, in a yard, in whose yard then had that morning been placed a sign on their dusty old station wagon that says, for sale. What had happened is that a bus that was carrying 53 members of a local high school choir had ripped through 72 feet of guardrail after it had swerved to avoid a head-on collision with a drunk driver. After ripping through the guardrail, the bus flipped over and fell 22 feet to the ground, landing on its top, crushing down to the seats. One witness said that there was blood-stained music sheets scattered everywhere. And one of the survivors said that it was like everything was a tangle of weeping and moaning and a scattering of arms and legs. Only a few weeks before, many of these had gone to prom. A few weeks before that, a number of this group had been in the school's production of Fiddler on the Roof. A week later, many of those who were now buried would have been walking together 
down the, to receive their diplomas for graduation. Many had been together since junior high, if not before that. And now 29 were dead, 25 more were seriously wounded, and everyone who was, had survived was left perplexed, confused, and grieving. Why would a loving God allow something like this to happen? What did these 29 or these 50 plus kids done to deserve this fate? Was God trying to teach them a lesson? And if he was, I mean, isn't it a little bit late now? The lesson is gone in there. Most of them are gone. And so there's nothing they can do about the lesson that they learned. Was he teaching a lesson to their parents or to the community as a whole? And these are the kinds of questions that those who were part of that community would certainly have to be asking themselves. And maybe even one that they would be hesitant to ask, but why these kids? Why the school choir? Why not the debate team? Why not the football team? Why these kids? Those who were affected by this tragedy, or those who even hear of this tragedy and are touched by it, are moved to be asking those kinds of questions. Now, if you believe that we live in a world that is driven and governed by luck, by fate, then there's really no point in asking this kind of question because there is no answer whatsoever. But if you believe that there is a God who is in control and who is sovereign and who is loving, then these kinds of questions inevitably come to mind and they do matter. In fact, they matter quite a bit because it's a legitimate question is how can something like this happen? something that seems so unfair. How can it happen if we have a loving God that's in control of all things? And it doesn't even have to be those kinds of questions based on earth-shattering, life-shattering circumstances. We all experience difficulties and hardships, things that rock our world even if nobody else is aware of it. It may be that some of you here are wondering or have wondered, why is it that I lost my job when there are other people who either don't do their job as well or who are just not worthy? How did I lose my job? Why did God allow for my spouse to walk out on me and leave me with kids or take the kids with them? Why is it that I've contracted this illness when so many who live far more or far less healthy lives seem to be fine? Why is it that God gave to us the gift of a child and yet our child was born with very, some kind of birth defect. We live in a complex world and life is complex and sometimes it's difficult. And many of us have questions whether we are willing to ask them or not. The sad truth is that many of us are sometimes uncomfortable, feeling like there's something inappropriate about asking these kinds of questions. And as we last week were introduced to a man, Habakkuk, who was a priest and then called to be a prophet, at the tail end of the existence of the nation of Judah, we met a man who was not only unafraid to ask these kinds of questions, but we recognize, based on the calling of his life and what God has recorded, he felt compelled to try to reconcile the God that he knew and the life that he saw. He was, he was not willing to allow that tension to exist, and so he goes before God and he lays out and cries out, How long, O Lord? How long do we need to wait until we see that you are at work? And his complaint, as we looked in the passage in the beginning last week, was that 
all sorts of things were happening in this world and in their lives and in particular in their own nation. The people of God. And God seemed to be incredibly silent. Now, if you were here last week, or well, even if you're not and you were not and you were looking at the, uh, those first four verses, there's some things that we learned that we need to remember. One is that it's not only natural, but it's perfectly appropriate for us to ask questions of God's in times when he seems to be silent. But we also need to remember that when God seems to be silent, things are not necessarily as they seem. And so we need to be careful that to not to misread God's silence as God's absence and inability. I hope that we saw as we consider this and continue to see that the honest questions can actually become a great opportunity for us for spiritual growth. But that happens because when we experience difficulties in life, questions that we just don't know how to resolve, those things tend to drive us either to God or away from God. And the people of God need to commit themselves to realize that the away from God leads to no answers, although it may satisfy some level of frustration. But the leading to God will bring you the hope that you are longing for and ultimately the answers that we all need. Now, it's interesting because as we come to the text this morning, we see that Habakkuk now has a, an entirely different kind of problem. Last week he was concerned with the silence of God, and now this week he has a problem with the sovereignty of God. And what he's dealing with is very important for us who are believers in God, who are seeking answers in a world and in a culture that doesn't necessarily make sense. Wondering, God, what are you doing? And then a question, when we have questions, when we see what God is doing, and then seems to be totally out of order with what we think ought to be done. Now, the first thing that we need to see, I think, from the text that we have before us this morning is that sometimes God doesn't seem to make sense. In fact, sometimes God may seem to be unfair. I mean, Habakkuk's dilemma, as we've touched on, was that his people, of whom he was a priest, had in increasingly been turning their backs on God, ignoring God, rebelling against God to the point that what was evil was now being called good and what is good was being called evil. The world wasn't making any sense. And Habakkuk cries out, oh Lord, how long are we going to have to put up with this? How long until you do something? And the whole question of how long seems to indicate that this wasn't like uh, the morning Ben's group that he decided that's what he's going to pray. Apparently, he'd been praying for a long period of time. This has been a long time coming. The whole idea of how long suggests this might have even been years in the making that Habakkuk was growing in his concern about the culture, about the church, about his people. And he's praying, and he's not seeing God at work. And then one day, God broke the silence, which is the text that we have before us uh, this morning. And God's answer caused more confusion than his silence. God seems to have understood that because if you look at our text in, in verse 5, God kind of prefaced what he was going to say. He says, I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if you were told. God's kind of setting him up for, for the news here because what we have going on here is as Habakkuk has been crying out, Habakkuk has basically been saying, Lord, just tell me what your game plan is in so I know what I'm supposed to do. And God had said, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And Habakkuk says, try me. And the Lord says in verse 6, all right, here's the game plan. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome, and their justice and their dignity go forth from themselves. 
In other words, they determine for themselves what they think is right, and whatever they want is what they determine is right, and they go take whatever it is that they want, and they seize. These Chaldeans, I know some of your Bibles say the Babylonians, it's really you know, not a, a significant difference. The Chaldeans was a small group in the, kind of the south side of Babylon. And as the Assyrians were getting weak as they were reigning in Babylon, then this little group was raising up strength militarily and they took over Babylon. In fact, not only did they do that, they beat Egypt and they beat the Assyrians uh, and then they beat the Babylonians in, in, in battle, all of them. And so the small group of Chaldeans, which was their ethnicity, now took over Babylon, so they were the Babylonians. But however you look at it, this group of people who were known for their violence and for their warrior mentality would go into villages and communities and they would pillage and kill and rape their way through with mercilessly for everybody uh, that, that got in their way. It just was a stunning, stunning thing to hear for Habakkuk to hear God saying, these evil people, I raise them up. It's not even that I'm going to use them. I raise them up. The power they have, I, I, I empower them. I'm the one that's using them. And then goes on in great detail in the following verses, kind of explaining, uh, just in case Habakkuk wasn't paying attention to CNN as to what these people were like and how evil and hideous and the way that they did things. So when we come to verse 12, we see Habakkuk having heard all of this and he's no doubt kind of dizzy and he's calling time out. And his questions, essentially the same one that almost any of us would ask. He was in part confessing, saying, look, I know we're unfaithful. I know we, your people, have not been faithful to you. We have not given you the honor that you deserve. We really have become kind of self-oriented, doing what we want to do, but I, I don't understand this. How can you use people who are worse than us to bring judgment and discipline upon us? It makes no sense because you who are holy, you can't look upon that which is unholy. And we deserve discipline. They deserve to be annihilated. And yet you are empowering them, not only empowering them and allowing them to live, you're using them against your own people. And Habakkuk was dealing with an entirely new problem, not just the silence of God, but perhaps the possible unfairness of God. And what we have here in, in Habakkuk speaking is simply a crisis of faith. Because all of a sudden, everything that he knew about God and everything that he thought he knew about God was rocked by what God says about God. He had already been pulled by the tension of, okay, I know this is true about God, and I see this is going on in the world, and I see this is going on with God's people. And so Habakkuk, as a priest, as a prophet, knew something ought to happen. And Habakkuk, as, as a priest, certainly was well aware of the word, knew a lot about God. But now as God comes and speaks to him in response to his question, it is so far out of, uh, out of Habakkuk's box that he, his mind is blown. It, it makes no sense to him. And now he's having to wrestle with, okay, first you were silent, and now I, I don't like the answer. I don't like what it is that you're promising to do. But I think that very atmosphere, that very attitude is exactly what makes Habakkuk so pertinent for us and so contemporary for us today. Because we all wrestle with the same question that Habakkuk was wrestling with. Because there's the world as it is and there's the world as we think it ought to be. And they are not the same. And then there's God 
who we think ought to work in a particular way because of things that we know that are true about him, and yet we are reminded time and time again throughout the scripture, although it's not stated particularly here in this passage, but God keeps on telling us, we hear his people is, my ways are not your ways. My ways are not your ways. You don't understand what I'm doing. But in his love, he continues to remind us to trust him and to be his people. Habakkuk is pertinent for us because Habakkuk was living and experiencing the epitome of the fact that not only when life doesn't make sense, but when God himself doesn't make sense. What in the world are you doing, God? You can't be serious. But as we look at this text, we also need to realize that what God is calling Habakkuk and to all who are his followers, we need to understand that our response to the unfair events of our lives or crisis in our life is vitally important. In fact, it's actually essential. I want to touch on first some unhealthy responses, though they are normal and they are natural. Some things that are they're not only unhealthy, but they're unhelpful. Before we see what God is trying to draw out of Habakkuk and out of us and the answers that God actually give that may not be uh, as evident as we would like, at least at first. I think the first unhelpful response would be to simply ask no questions at all. That's what we looked at and talked about last week. The idea that somehow if we ask God, if we question God, if we wonder that God would be unhappy with us and then just make the whole situation worse, that's an unhelpful and an unbiblical way to approach things. And when I say unbiblical, I'm not saying necessarily just sinful. I'm saying that God in his own word has prescribed that we should feel free to come before him and to ask questions and to acknowledge we don't understand and we don't know what he's doing as much as we would love to. And that in that, our pain is expressed. It's perfectly appropriate and God calls for us to do that. And so asking questions. And so as I finished last week, my hope was not so much that you would be encouraged because I don't think I said anything to particularly be encouraging, but that you would be free. And through freedom, you would find the encouragement. The second unhelpful response would be to conclude that God truly is unfair. If any of you have ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty, you see a good example of that. The movie is chock full of heresy that somehow teaches us truth about God. So hopefully you can discern through. But if, you, if you've seen the movie, there's a scene in there right after basically his whole world is collapsing. Jim Carrey is just venting and he's fuming and he says... I'm an ant, and God's like the mean kid with a magnifying glass. Now, for those of you who don't understand it, which may be some of the ladies it, uh, and some of you who never had sons, there are some of us who, for whatever reason, scientifically induced, we just thought, huh, there's a little ant, and there's the sun, and I wonder, look what I can do, and if I can zero in this magnifying glass on this ant, I wonder what happens. And Jim Carrey was saying he felt like the ant who, at the hands of the mean kid who was burning the ant to a crisp, just everything was going away. This also has biblical illustration. It's essentially what Job's wife had suggested. Her counsel to her husband as he was afflicted with all sorts of of hardships, physical, emotional, economic. Curse God and die. She's a gem. Guys, if you're single, look for some, keep looking if that's kind of the mindset you got there. But, but, and unless she gets a bad rap, there is a sense in which she may have had a level of compassion because she didn't understand any more than Job. And while her 
husband is suffering and there doesn't seem to be any answer. She doesn't want to see his suffering continue and her mindset seems to be like in the midst of this unknowable lack of understanding. We just don't know what's going on. Why hold on to some sentimental belief in a loving God when it seems that so much of life is conspiring against you? Unwise, but not necessarily unsympathetic when we consider it that way. Because many people embrace that conclusion. I mean, there's this mindset that thinks, okay, if we're in the midst of suffering and difficulty, then either God is unfair or unloving, or he must not exist at all. Although I will point out that anybody that embraces that idea has failed to consider why we have this sense of right and wrong in the first place. It's built in and seems to be somewhat universal. I mean, it's, it's broken and it's, it's warped and distorted from culture to culture, but all of us have this sense of what's inappropriate. All of us have this idea that if somebody comes up and slugs them, that's not meet my idea of, of what's fair. All of us, if we are robbed, somebody takes something from us without permission, no matter what the culture, we tend to think this is inappropriate. There is a universal hardwiring of right and wrong. And while the wire is broken in a few places, all of us have that. And there's a reason for that, because God has created after us, us after his image with that understanding that there is fairness. Otherwise, we would be silly to even charge God with being unfair or uncaring. Third unhelpful response would be to conclude that unfair suffering is a form of God's punishment. And I suspect this may be the most common one of all, particularly for those who profess faith. That there's an assumption that if we are going through some sort of difficulty in our life, some sort of a very great hardship, it must be because I've done something and I deserve the punishment that's coming, even if I have no idea what it is that I have done. And the reason that this is so common, and perhaps is because there is some truth to that, because there is consequence for our sin, for our disobedience, for our actions. If you rob a liquor store, you're probably going to jail. God worked that out through his providence. He doesn't need to intervene for justice in that situation. There are things that we do, and there are consequences that are just part of the way that God has created life. But many of us continue to rack our brains and understand why is it that I'm experiencing this? What is it that I did? And there doesn't seem to be anything in our lives that correlates to the suffering that we are, are experiencing. And even if there is, then it doesn't make sense that others who have been more guilty are not experiencing the same consequences. And we rack our brains and we wonder, then, what is it that God is punishing me for? It's not a bad question. In fact, the disciples asked that as well. As they were walking with Jesus, we see it recorded in John chapter 9. They saw a man who was born blind. At least so far as they knew, he had been born blind. They never knew anything other. Having wrestled with that same kind of question about what is God doing and, and what causes this kind of lifetime suffering, they asked Jesus, did he sin or did his parents sin? Jesus' response was perplexing to them, but it's important for us to consider. His answer is neither. Now, when saying neither, Jesus was not saying that both the parents and this guy were sinless in their life. He's saying that while they were broken just like all of us, there was no sin in particular. There was nothing that in their lives that caused this man to be born blind. But rather, this man was born with this condition in order that the glory of God might be demonstrated in his own life. 
And that's an unsettling thing for many of us, but it's something we do need to rack our brains, uh, wrap our brains around because we who are followers of Jesus Christ claim that we want to. We pray, God, be glorified in my life. And yet, some of the greatest glory comes in the midst of the way that we respond to the suffering of this life. And we're, that's not in our program. But what's more important is to clearly indicate that the suffering that we experience is not necessarily a correlation to something we've done. It's not necessarily a punishment for something that we have done. Jesus has refuted that entirely. It also exposes a, a kind of a theological problem for us that creates a spiritual dilemma. See, some assume that the suffering, the amount of suffering we do, we are paying back what we owe. It's called penance, the doctrine of penance. And then when you've suffered enough, then you're purged of whatever guilt that you've had, then you can feel free and refreshed because you've paid the penalty. The problem with that whole concept is the doctrine of penance as opposed to repentance shifts the focus of our faith to our suffering and away from Jesus. We become our own functional saviors, which ultimately leaves us without hope. We could suffer forever and not pay the price, and yet it leaves us without hope because we're not focusing on Jesus. The final unhelpful response that I want to touch on this morning, which I think is commonly held even if not consciously, is to believe that God knows that life is unfair, but he's just not able to do anything about it. A number of years ago, a, a man named, a rabbi named Harold Kushner took that position and that approach, and he wrote fairly extensively about it in a book that was on the New York Times bestselling list for quite some time, for years. And the book was titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. What had happened is Kushner, who had watched his own son die a, a long, prolonged and a, a painful death, and he then concluded that God was as frustrated and outraged at death and the unfairness of his son as opposed to people that are out doing awful and evil things. And he believed that God was frustrated and outraged, but just there wasn't anything that he could do about it. And here's what Kushner himself writes. I believe in God, but I do not believe the same things about him that I did years ago. Now I recognize his limitations. He's limited in what he can do by laws, and uh, laws of nature and by the evolution of the human nature and human moral freedom. I no longer hold God responsible for illnesses and accidents and natural disasters. I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it much more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. And it sort of makes sense. There is an idea, and, and I, I can sort of understand that somebody that, that God who is compassionate, who loves, is much easier to relate to. Because it's easier to relate to, then the idea itself has taken root, and many people, whether consciously or not, have embraced this mindset. But they're not aware of the collateral damage that this mindset creates. The time this book was in its heyday, 
I had an uncle who was going through difficulties in his own life. His wife and he were having difficulties. She had threatened to leave, had left, come back, and it was just a very unstable time. His job had been, company had downsized. He had taken a job beneath what he was trained to do. And he went into deep and prolonged period of depression. When a well-intended person in our family, but uninformed, handed him a copy of this book. And he read, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and resonated with a God who loves and is compassion, but was left hopeless by a God who could do nothing, and followed the logical conclusion that if God can do nothing, then my circumstances are not going to get any better. Praying to him makes no sense. Actually, nothing makes any sense. And he committed suicide. John Piper wrestling with this question when somebody posed it to him, as I recall the story, I believe it was his mother, it may have been another family member, in just a freakish accident, had been driving along in their car when the truck in front of them, which was carrying a load of lumber, hit a bump or came to a sudden stop or, or whatever, and some boards flew off the truck through the windshield, killing her instantly. The memorial service, well-intended Christians speaking with John Piper, before he was John Piper, I guess, but uh, before they knew, you just don't ask him questions because he knows, no. Uh, just kept on saying over and over again, this isn't God's will. God, God would not want this to happen. Until Piper says that he'd finally had us full of it and he responded trying to be as kind as he could, but I'm not sure how kind it would have been when he responded and saying, look, I am not comforted by the idea that my God is not more powerful than a two by four. And it was not long after I had read of that experience that in our own lives something had happened. This church that I was then pastoring was situated right across the street from an elementary school. And each year this elementary school, the fifth graders in all of the classes would all go to a retreat, a really nice uh, retreat center on top of Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. And they would have a celebration and be prepped for the time they would have as they began to mature a little more and move a little bit more freedom of junior high school. In this particular year, as the students were gathered around and were around a campfire at this, at this camp, one of the young girls, a 10-year-old girl, just dropped over dead. No history of medical problems, no warning signs of ill health, even during the time she'd been active and involved in everything that was going on, just like every other kid. Just stunning tragedy. And so as they came back and they gathered the community pastors together to be available to the students in order to counsel not only the students but the teachers as well, the pastors were gathered together in the school library the next morning when one of the pastors, well-intended as he was, stood up and said, now the first thing, just talking to the gathering of pastors and a few of the administrators, the first thing we need to make sure is that we make sure all of these kids know that this was not God's will. God is loving and they don't need to be afraid of God. And I sat there perplexed for a moment because I'm thinking, this is not really the time for a theological debate. But if I don't say anything, there could be potentially tragic consequences. And so I finally, I, I said, I don't want to debate, but I have a problem with what you're saying because the reality is we are willing, by saying that, to sacrifice ultimate hope for a temporary peace. 
We're going to tell these kids God had nothing to do with this. God's not involved with your life, which will help them feel better. We're going to protect God and his reputation right now. But years from now, they're going to have a difficulty of their own in their life, and they're going to remember that a group of pastors came to them and told them God can't do anything about the problems in your life. It's going to rob them of the very hope that we have that God is sovereign and God is loving, and sometimes we just don't know what in the world's going on. It's a wrong and unhelpful response. But they're all very common. So you may ask then, what is the response? What is the appropriate response? What is the helpful response? What is the biblical and, and the response? What would God have us to do? The answer, while in one sense is easier said than done, but is exactly what God would have us to do, is that we need to trust God even in the face of seeming unfairness, even when things don't make sense. There is a sense in which Habakkuk didn't get the answer that he was looking for, but he did get an answer. We see even in the preface to the statement that he, God made before he told Habakkuk what the plan was. Turn back to verse 5. And God says, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. And he was challenging something in Habakkuk that is also true for most of us. You know, it said all politics is local. Well, so is all suffering. So is all pain. So in one sense is all religion. And Habakkuk had narrowed his focus, even though he, being a priest, knowing that God is the God of gods, he is the king of the nations, but he had begun treating God and, and thinking of God as if God was only the God of a particular clan who just had more power and could control things no matter what others were doing. And what God was saying to him is, you need to broaden your perspective if you're thinking that I'm not at work or that I'm being silent or that something is happening outside of my purposes. Look at the nations and be amazed. Because if you look at the nations, you'll see where I am at work. And that same word is appropriate for us as we are sitting here today in a culture that I don't really understand, where it does seem that that which is evil is being called good, that which is good is being declared evil. That might be overstating it, although I suspect that many who are here have that same sensitivity. And we just see that our culture is not what it was, and some of us are fearing that our culture may be in, in, on, the, on the process of collapse, and wondering, God, where are you? And how long are you going to allow this to take place? And are you just not doing anything? Because, you know, we, we are your people, and yet we're not, we're not faithful. We know that, but how can, how can you do these things? Are you there or are you at work? And God says, look at the nations. Just think back just a couple of weeks ago, we had one of our missionaries here and proclaiming about what's going on as he is serving in Africa and told us that 6,000 churches a week are being planted in Africa. God is at work. He's calling people to himself according to his purpose. Read and find out what's going on in China. That now far outnumbers the number of believers, far outnumbers those in the entire Western world. God is at work doing something that most of us would have thought it was totally impossible to do. Read what God is doing throughout Latin America, and you see that the church is exploding and people are coming away from their you know, lack of faith or faithlessness and moving into, moving into faith and growing in their knowledge of God. And we see God is at work and carrying out the purpose that he claimed that he was going to have, calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they were going to be his. And that, frankly, that all who belong to him should rejoice in what's going on, but we look at what's going on in our own culture, and while rightly concerned, we assume God's not doing anything because God's not doing what we want him to do, 
It's now an opportunity for us to look at the nations and see whether our agenda is attached to God's agenda or whether we're going to continue to assume that God should just attach his agenda to one of our political parties and carry out our own agenda. God is at work. We need to repent, but we need to see God is at work. We also need to see that God does answer, not in this text, but you know, I, Habakkuk wasn't writing in this dialogue and God wasn't responded to put the numbers in. And as Camper will touch on more next week, all of chapter 2, God is speaking about what it is he's doing. He does say that, yeah, I've raised these people up, and I'm not going to leave them go unpunished. The evil don't just get away with what's going on. Actually, Preston will deal with that in a couple weeks. But, but he also says what is the key verse in this entire book is in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says essentially the righteous will live by faith. In fact, here's what he, he says. The righteous shall live by faith. His faith. And what does it mean that we live by faith? Just like the TV evangelists say, just believe and things will come? No, our faith, the faith of all the scripture always has a focus. It's not, there's no benefit of faith itself. Faith doesn't save, faith is a means by which we are saved. And the faith that we have is always in the promise of God. And in our case, we understand that it was fulfilled in the person of Christ on the cross. See, the righteous will live by faith in what? In the promises of God, fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And what do we see on the cross? Well, we see that God is very well aware that we live in an unfair world, that the world isn't right the way it's supposed to be. But we also see how God responds to the unfairness of the world by taking control of it again. Rather than just inflicting punishment on everybody else, he absorbs the punishment himself as Christ himself was crucified for us and then raised again to give us hope. But actually, Hebrew scholars would tell you that it even goes a step further. Because while the righteous shall live by his faith, in other words, it's saying it's not even righteous will live by our faith. We are living by what Jesus believed. And the word faith is also legitimately translated as faithfulness. And so you and I, who have questions, are right to ask God, But God's answer to us is pointing us to the cross and saying, here is your hope. Here is where you can come to understand and gain some perspective. It is rooted in his faithfulness. He who volunteered to die for us in order to rise, to protect us, to give to us, to deliver us, and promise that nobody would ultimately take us out of God's hands. Even in the midst of the most difficulty, we who are followers of Christ have hope. And we live with that hope and constantly, no matter what we're doing, not simple ignoring difficulties, but we search and dig to understand how we have hope in the midst of the world we live in. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this word that points us to hope, even if it is still in some way far away. But we thank you that you are at work, whether we see it or not. We thank you for the promise that you've given to us And we who are your people, with the questions that we may have, the scars from life, Lord, we pray that you would continually be at work to turn our attention to you, to what Christ has done, and to what you are doing through Christ throughout the world now, and attach our lives to your story. Lord, bless us with the understanding that we may conform to your way and to your will, now and forever. We pray in Christ. Amen. For our closing hymn, we have a bittersweet opportunity as we do as this is the season that seems to happen the church by its 